ההלשיק סקרי ניקור. Magnificent representation of those who are addressed to Ireland from Africa. Indeed, uh, the Dean of Diplomatic Corps, you are most welcome, and uh, Dean of the African Representation to Ireland. Excellencies, oh, provost, uh, distinguished guests, dear friends. And I want to congratulate Trinity College straight away on its continuing support for the celebration of Africa. I don't think that there is a topic that requires uh, a deeper, more considered reflection uh, or a discourse uh, than that at the very time than, than just now. I'm very honored to address so many distinguished representatives of so many nations, as I've said, particularly the nations of Africa. I began visiting Africa for the first time in the 1970s. Many changes have uh, taken place. But I want to thank the Ambassador of the Republic of South Africa for extending on behalf of the Ambassador, the Embassy, resident in Ireland, his great, a gracious invitation to join you today. I am very moved by the promise and the Trinity International Development Initiatives and continuing support for our discussion on Africa. I think the last time I was here, I was discussing the issue of land and the inadequacies of the DeSoto model. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here as President of Ireland to celebrate the long and abiding bonds shared by the people of Ireland and the peoples of the continent of Africa, and also to reflect uh, on all the opportunities and challenges that lie before us in the new century. I was invited to speak on Africa-Ireland relations cur uh, current and future. So I think it's useful to do it in terms of what has been some of the traditional relationship between Africa and Ireland, and then to move on to what I believe are challenges that we share. And most importantly, may I just say straight away, uh, is when I have been speaking in Africa in recent, recent years, I have to say that I find it somewhat depressing uh, here and the European Union in particular and wide beyond that, the people have sometimes have no idea of the long ancient history of Africa. It's as if we were talking about a blank page. I have the greatest respect uh, for that continent from which, after all, our species' origins began migration. I spoke of this when I spoke to the African Union in Addis Ababa some years ago. I think it's a continent that has had a diversity of cultures, systems of conflict resolution, many complicated relationships between people who group together. And I think, just the last leaving that point aside, I remember when I was present in Somalia during the famine, finding it incomprehensible that those who were speaking to from New York in the midst of terrible circumstances had no knowledge of the clan system had no knowledge of, of the like, indigenous systems of discussion and resolution, which I found very depressing. I discussed this at Mogadishu Airport with Mr. Sanum, I remember, and before he was uh, dismissed. He was not African and understood Africa. So I'm not just uh, speaking today, really, as because uh, one should give a speech on Africa today. 
is I'm deeply committed to Africa, and I'm urging deep commitment to Africa. And I want also to introduce some of the new themes that I believe should govern our relationship. We share a common destiny, one that is full of much potential and many possibilities. And we also, I think, have signed up in the international documents we have signed to the determination to create a just and sustainable future for our peoples and our planet. Fifty-eight years ago, nearly to this day, Guamara Krumah, the head of the Free Ghana, came to Dublin to speak of that enduring connection of our long and unremitting struggles to take our place amongst the nations of the world and of the hopes for a new world order founded on peace and justice for all. At a meeting of the Irish United Nations Association in the Shelburne Hotel, only a few hundred metres from where I stand today, he invoked in his words those Irish leaders of the last century who realised that the struggle of Ireland for independence was not the struggle of one country alone, but part of a world movement for freedom. It is a very important statement at its time as we worked our way through the throes of decolonization. But it has an essence, too, in relation to our capacity to move through that which we are unable to criticize at the present time. Maybe much of what Pope Francis has said is, arises from a kind of culture of indifference. And perhaps it is more than that. Perhaps it is that we feel we don't have the capacity any longer to understand and shape our world. The most resolute advocates for a progressive Irish freedom had always looked for inspiration, not only to the settler colonies of Australia and New Zealand, but to the peoples of Africa, of India and of Iran, and to the examples of their struggles. Even many of those considered moderate nationalists, accused by their opponents of seeking only equal participation in the project of empire itself, cheered the resistance of African peoples to European colonialism. Charles Stuart Parnell, the great Irish parliamentary leader, denounced the invasion in 1879 of the lands of the Zulu people, and lamented that in his words, at least half of the regiments now at the Cape are composed of young men from Connemara, sent to Zululand to become the Holocaust of imperialism. This is an area, Irish language speaking, that I represented for many years and so. And we've had people on both sides of conflicts. Reports of the resistance of King Sedarello and the Zulu people were met with cheers at public meetings throughout Ireland, even as many of those young men from Connemara perished in the British defeat of the Zulu to the Zulu army at the Battle of Isanzulanguana, reflecting the complexity of the Irish engagement. Some of Parnell's fellow Irish parliamentarians were at times more ambitious in their designs. Frank Hugh O'Donnell declared to the Irish House of, declared to the House of Commons in Westminster that parliamentary agitation would not be effective until the Irish people crushed down under their present tyranny, effected a coalition with the oppressed natives of India and other British dependencies. <coughs> And while this did not come to pass, the great founder of the Irish National League, Land League, Michael Davitt, used the platform provided to him by the Westminster Parliament to denounce imperial actions in Africa, 
whether it was the policies of the Royal Niger Company, intervention in Sudan, or the assault on the Ashanti Kingdom. Parliamentary agitation was effective in drawing the attention of the world and progressive opinion in the imperial heartlands to the injustice of imperial exploitation. But it could no more prevent the encroachment of empire in the 19th century than it could secure Irish independence. <coughs> more radical men and women would emerge to seek to sunder forever the relationship with empire by force of arms. And it was an honor for us to welcome the representatives of the nations of Africa and of other nations to witness our national commemorations two years ago and the centenary of the 1916 rising, as we recalled the idealism of those women and men who participated. Next year, we in Ireland will commemorate the centenary of the first meeting of the Dáil of the Revolutionary Irish Republic, proclaimed by the Easter Proclamation. That first Dáil established to speak and act in the name of the Irish people, would sanction and organize our war of independence, fought to vindicate the existence of the Republic as the expression of the popular will of the people of Ireland. In doing so, we will recall that our forebears were partners only of a national movement, but as Kwame and Krumme have reminded us of a global movement for national self-determination. For that first Dolair met on the eve of the Egyptian Revolution in 1919, in which the people of Egypt asserted their right to national freedom against the very same empire against which we struggle. One of the first acts of the Dome was to issue a message to the free nations of the world, and they issued it in Irish, English, and French. And it unambiguously stated that Ireland, as they put it, believes in freedom and justice as the fundamental principles of international law, because she believes in a frank cooperation between the peoples for equal rights against the vested privileges of ancient tyrannies. Because the permanent peace of Europe can never be secured by perpetuating military dominion for the profit of empire, but only by establishing the control of government in every land upon the basis of the free will of a free people. May I add at this stage that it is one of the disadvantages of moving forward in relationship between the European Union and the continent of Africa, that many countries in the European Union do not seem to recognize the importance that would be attached to their transacting their previous relationships with the continent of Africa. The transaction of that previous relationship would, to my mind, clear the ground for new and significant developments. It's something we have all had to do even in our relationship with our closest neighbours here. But that declaration I quoted from the first programme, the, 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 the programme of the first Dole, it was revolutionary. It reflected an international spirit that had seemed to offer new hope in the midst of the First World War. Only months after the Russian Revolution, the United States and Russia, representing the two great democratic powers, demanded a peace based on what was called the Petrograd Formula, proposed by the Petrograd Soviet and endorsed by the provisional government of Russia, as it was. It envisioned a democratic peace, a peace without victory, a peace based on the principles of self-determination. 
That moment passed as the United States drew closer to the Western Allies and the Bolshevik country took power in Russia, leading to historical opposition. I think that it is useful in the present moment to recall a time when the United States and Russia stood together for an international order based on democracy, freedom and anti-imperialism. The peace settlements that followed the First World War would of course rest on very different foundations. The imperial powers simply acquired the colonies of their vanquished rivals. The peoples of Africa would remain under imperial occupation and our Irish War of Independence would rely on assistance not of other nations as was hoped, but upon the Irish diaspora, particularly in the United States and across the world. For many of those who fought in support of the Irish struggle, the creation of an independent Irish state was the plus ultra of Irish accomplishment. Yet for others, perhaps only a minority, but an important minority nonetheless, the Irish struggle was part of the universal struggle of which Kwame Nkrumah spoke. For those few, any settlement which maintained a connection to empire was unacceptable. Their most articulate spokesman was Lee Meadows, who urged his colleagues in the first zone to reject the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which brought an end to a war of independence, explaining his determination to continue the war, despite its potentially ruinous consequences for the people of Ireland. And I believe there were ruinous consequences in many ways, a great tragedy. But what Meadows said, and the importance attached to empire, was this. Empire means to me that terrible thing that has spread its tentacles all over the earth, that has crushed the lives out of people and exploited its own when it could not exploit anybody else. We are going into the British Empire now to participate in the empire shame, even though we do not actually commit the act to participate in the shame and the crucifixion of India and the degradation of Egypt. Is that what the Irish people fought for freedom fought? With all that great distance then in time between today, 1922, we cannot presume to imagine, to judge the terrible decisions thrust upon those Irish men and women of a hundred years ago. But do let us recognize the bravery of such an anti-imperial message. And conceptually, and I'm in a university, and it is very, very important, imperialism doesn't end with what I have just described. Could you not apply what I have just quoted uh, to international financialized capital and uh, then moves rootless and across the Atlantic? And for example, that can put even significant international agreements that we've made tournament uh, uh, enough. But let us recognize that it was an impulse, what I've described, which did not perish, but was gradually strengthened. And as our country began a long and difficult path to achieve a final and complete sovereignty, as sovereignty of the Irish people, we did so by championing the sovereignty and freedom of other people in Asia, the Caribbean, and most particularly in Africa. In 1936, Eamon de Valera condemned the Italian invasion of Ethiopia stating that the failure of the League of Nations was such that it could not any longer command the confidence of the ordinary people of the world. The League of Nations had been undermined by the machinations of the great European powers with their plans for secret bilateral pacts and constant search for imperial advantage. 
the Irish state would not re-engage with global affairs until 1955 when we joined the United Nations. It was in the General Assembly of the United Nations, in a forum in which the voices of the newly free nations would be heard, that Ireland could give an answer to question that Liam Mellows had asked. To what end did we seek freedom? It was Liam Mellows' former comrade-in-arms, Frank Aiken, who as Minister for External Affairs, first gave shape to an Irish voice in global affairs. One willing to support the aspirations of the peoples of the world, to self-determination, and to a future free from war, in his first address to the General Assembly on the 20th of September, 1957, the Minister for Foreign Affairs said, Keep us all, we believe, to be the great master principle by which this Assembly should be guided in its quest for a just and peaceful world order. As I read these lines, does it not strike me, could you not write any of them? Could you? Would they not be relevant today? He used the opportunity to speak for the freedom of one of the great nations of Africa, demanding that the French Republic, perhaps the European nation, which have contributed so many ideas to, the, to Irish freedom, he demanded that they de it declare its readiness to concede the right of self-determination to Algeria. Excellencies, dear friends, we must ask ourselves to what extent our thinking today supports the United Nations. And we must ask, has its unilateral role not been undermined by unaccountable forces, then we must muster the courage to question. Tomorrow on Africa Day, we shall mark the success of that struggle and of so many others by, on the African continent by celebrating the establishment of the Organization of African Unity. The opening lines of that chapter adopted more than a half a century ago, recalls so well that moment of hope when 32 delegations resolved in Addis Ababa to declare that it is the inalienable right of all people to control their own destiny. On that day, the 25th of May, 1963, there were peoples not yet free. Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Namibia, and Angola. They still faced a hard and difficult path to vindicate the inalienable right of which the delegates had been speaking. And on that day too, the new organization pledged itself to the struggle to put an end to the South African government's criminal policy of apartheid and wipe out racial discrimination in all its forms. This was a struggle, as you have heard, to which many Irish people would very often with more alacrity and urgency than their government of the day, commit themselves. I do not want to elide any of the complexities of our own history, nor do I wish to affect any selective amnesia. <coughs> I was on the founding committee with Clara Asimhan. I'm very proud that I not only was on it, but that I stayed on it in difficult circumstances. And we did have our lonely moments standing in front of rugby grounds with the people passing us with the rugs and flasks and so forth, and Noel Brown and John de Corsiana and people like myself. We were small in number. And I think it's very important that we realize that. The majority of Irish nationalists in the early 20th century had supported the Boer republics in the South African wars, most of them seeing only the resistance of small republics 
against an imperial power, all of them ignoring the irony that those small republics had established themselves by displacing and attacking other peoples. During and after the Great Trek, for example, Sean Casey would write that of the time, every patriot carries in the lapel of his coat a button picture of Kruger, Volta, Stein, Joubert, Joubert. When the National Party of South Africa instituted the policy of apartheid in 1948, the then Minister for External Affairs of Ireland was Sean McBride, whose father, Major John McBride, had led a 500-strong Irish Transvaal Brigade and later received a commission from the South African Republic. 500 Irish and Irish Americans <coughs> joined Major McBride, while over 30,000 Irish soldiers had fought with British forces during the conflict. It might be expected that such a personal history the historically friendly links between politicians in our new Irish Free State and in South Africa, and the over 60,000 South Africans then claiming Irish descent at the time, would have inclined the Irish state towards an accommodation with the apartheid regime, or at least a lazy tolerance. It certainly does not justify it, and that is a kind of an excuse that I would think doesn't wash anymore. That this was so was due to the activism of a section of the Irish people, including Dr. Asman and Louise's wife, and so many others. And the leadership of South African exiles. Cadder was a professor of law here in Trinity College to have heard, and the moving force behind the Irish anti-apartheid movement. Sean McBride, who had been a founder of Amnesty International and a champion of human rights at home abroad, was one of the most prominent Irish politicians to throw his support behind <coughs> the movement. Indeed, as one of the drafters of the chapter of the Organization of African Unity, he was a stalwart of the cause of pan-Africanism and of a new international order that recognized the aspirations of all of the peoples of the world. Indeed, it is a concept that I'd like to lead to. It was a powerful concept in this day, pan-Africanism. This is where countries of Africa, looking at sharing, being able to move over each other's borders, and sharing possibilities. I found that it was an energizing concept. I still believe it today. John McBride would in 1974 be appointed the United Nations Commissioner for Namibia, where he threw his support beyond the liberation struggle, then being wished by Swap. Despite all the attempts of pro-apartheid forces to maintain the legal, illegal occupation of Namibia, in that year he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Accepting the prize in Stockholm, he used his considerable rhetorical skill to condemn those who would simply accept the world as it was. Accepting the world as it was, with his resonance to us today, accepting the world as it is. He says, very often those who are defending the maintenance of the status quo are in fact defending the continuance of oppression or of an order which is unjust. This is so particularly in the regions of Southern Africa where the political and economic structures are built upon racial discrimination and colonial exploitation. And when he died in 1988, Oliver Tambo would write, Sean McBride will always be remembered for the concrete leadership he provided to the liberation movement and people of Namibia and South Africa, driven by his own personal and political insight arising out of the cause of national freedom in Ireland, our debt to him 
can never be repaid. I believe by the arrival into our discourse of a new African body of scholarship, informed on what is not working, as well as by what is possible, that calls for a rejection of what Pope Francis has called a culture of indifference, is the best possible tribute to Tambo and to McBride. And Africa, may I suggest on this day, does not need to imitate what is destructive or what is failing. It needs a pan-African <coughs> commitment to new ecologically sustained economics. And may the new literature and the new scholarship be widely read all over the world. The spirit of solidarity displayed by Sean McBride was not confined to extraordinary Irish individuals. It was an important part of Irish life. One often transmitted to the Irish missionary movement, which had been active in Africa since the middle of the 19th century, particularly in education. It was the Irish men and women of the missionary orders who answered what Pope Francis has called the summons to solidarity, following their vocations to live and to work alongside the peoples of Africa. And they came, actually, from the poorer classes primarily in Athens. Irish development aid and emergency relief owe so much to those origins, to the extraordinary response to the emergency in Biafra in 1967. The understanding of the nature of the crisis was deepened by the presence of so many Irish members of the missionary orders in Nigeria, and in particular by the very strong presence of the Holy Ghost Fathers and Holy Rosary Sisters, and by the historical experience of the great hunger of the 19th century Gorkhamor, in which over a million Irish people had died. Then Irish non-governmental organisations such as Concern, Trocra, Bober, Gold and Gorka went on to carry out so much of their work with Africans, but it owes much of their origin to that tradition of solidarity taught by the Irish missionary orders. I recall meeting them in so many parts of Africa, as I've said in Somalia, during the famine, and in Ethiopia, and in different refugee camps. Since its inception 44 years ago, our own overseas development assistance program Irish Aid has followed in the footsteps of Irish aid workers and missionaries. By the beginning of the 1980s, we established long-term bilateral assistance programs with Lesotho, Sudan, Tanzania, and Zambia. And today, over 80% of the Irish aid budget of 2,707 million is allocated to African partner countries, helping to reduce hunger and build resilience, enhance sustainable development, and inclusive economic growth, and promote better governance and human rights. And maybe our greatest contribution will in fact be, in the future, in providing radical intellectual thought to enable us to recast the very concept of development itself. Now we must give a lead in the European Union, in giving leadership, for example, on the new models that Africans will bring into being appropriate for their continent. One of my predecessors, President Mary Robinson, <coughs> played a very important role in both reflecting and increasing public support for overseas assistance through her official visits to Somalia and Rwanda. Indeed, after her election to the Office of President in 1990, she continued her support for the Irish anti-apartheid movement, which was then beginning to have a growing influence in Irish society. I remember meeting her at Mogadishu Airport on our way to Mandela. The refugee camp. I had come from Baidoa, where 
130 pieces a day were done. And this is what gives out just to all of this. We can never just simply describe what a relationship is. We must be asking how we can, in fact, make it relevant for today, how we can use it as an instrument to give us a sustainable future. And it was through relentless activism that the anti-apartheid movement gradually pushed successive governments towards ever more activist roles. And thus, in 1970, Ireland became the first Western European state in the United Nations General Assembly to support the resolution promoted by members of the Organization of African Unity, which demanded the imposition of active sanctions against the apartheid regime, reflecting the completion of a gradual move from opposition to abstentionism. However, for a time, the state would continue to cleave to the policy of what it called constructive engagement, advocated by some of its powerful European partners and by the United States. As I reflect on this now, I think there isn't a lesson in it for me as much as there is for those who craft foreign policy. The price paid in terms of credibility if you decide to be, if you like, only to move when it is totally safe and when there is no loss involved. To those of us committed to the anti-apartheid movement, this was deeply disappointing we had to wait so far. Because not only were governments concept conservative, but the fact is that that conservatism was shared by very many of the Irish people. As I said, we met them outside the sporting grounds, and we met them when we organized the demonstrations. It also shows to stay positive that great gains can be made, made by small numbers of people. To those of us committed, we recognize the principle of international solidarity demanded nothing less ending all forms of co than ending all forms of collaboration with apartheid. That was the policy of the African National Congress and reflected public opinion throughout Africa, represented by the consistent support of the Organization of African Unity for that policy. But then there was something wonderful happened. The profound moral courage of ten workers, nine women and one man, at Dunn's stores, a supermarket chain in Ireland, was to be a huge factor in changing government policy. One summer day in 1984, a young worker, Mary Manning, asked the call to solidarity, issued from her union, and refused to handle any South African goods. She and nine comrades were suspended by her employer. At first, it was a lonely struggle. I can attest to that. But in time, the Irish people came to give their full support to the workers. And how moving it was that she was invited to, to meet Nelson Mandela and visit Ireland, and also that I was able to be with her, present for the funeral of Nelson Mandela. In 1987, the Irish government finally bowed to popular will, as I've said, and became the first Western country to ban South African imports, invoking international labour organisation conventions which enabled nation-states to prohibit imports produced using false labour. The apartheid state had at that time institutionalised a policy of forcing black prisoners to work for white farmers in the most punishing of conditions. It was a long delayed but nonetheless important alignment with the policies of the Organisation of African Union and the demonstration of the solidarity of the people of Ireland with the liberation struggle of the people of South Africa. 
a highly excellent city of friends. Since 2001, it has been the African Union which has given expression to the aspiration of the peoples of Africa for a united, democratic, peaceful, and economically emancipatory continent, one that will promote human rights, human development, and equality, not only at home, but through its solidarity around the globe. That unity of purpose will be required in this century more than ever, for our shared planet now confronts great challenges. The resolution of conflicts, ancient and new, the inequalities in wealth, income and power, which are deeply, and which divide our society, weaken social cohesion. The urgency in welcoming those fleeing war, persecution and natural disasters, and above all the unprecedented and potentially catastrophic effects of climate change, brought about by the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. And our planet has been brought to this point in power, with about 5% of the population of the world producing 80% of what has caused our present difficulties. These challenges are global in their reach and in their scope, and they can only be met by global solutions coordinated through the regional and global institutions capable of representing the majority of the peoples on this planet the African Union, the European Union, and the United Nations. But I, if I have been speaking of impact and coaching leading medals, is it not the case that we are in conditions of globalized, financialized, rootless capital, not dealing with something that is similar but even more deadly, something which affects more people and all of our prospects than imperialism or colonization? We might ask ourselves, is it that we have surrendered to that as inevitable? Or do we regard that, that we have in fact actually lost the courage to challenge what is in front of us? I have been following the Africa story very much. And while it is true to say in relation to say eliminating malnutrition, it is great gains are being made. But actually Africa is set to miss the United Nations development goal on malnutrition. There are regions in every one of the countries where it will be achieved, but overall it will not be achieved by 2020. The Sustainable Development Goals, simply to achieve them and to respond to climate change, requires is we are required to make a new paradigm. I have seen, I best see this origin being origin in Africa itself, because there is a great reluctance to actually accommodate our mini university again, where all the great scientists could take you. You have to change paradigms in thinking. But why is it that in religion to economics, ethics, and sociability, we are not, we are condemned to the single paradigm that simply isn't working? The Sustainable Development Goals agreed by NAP under 93 nation states in New York two and a half years ago represents a vital moral achievement and will be the means by which it could be the means by which we organize and measure our progress in meeting these challenges in the coming decades. The Irish and Kenyan ambassadors to the United Nations were appointed by the President of the General Assembly to facilitate the negotiation of the goals. As President of Ireland, I was very proud of the role that the partnership between Ireland and Kenya, Europe and Africa played in ensuring that all the voices within the General Assembly were heard. Three months after the historic agreement in New York, the 21st Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change came to a historic settlement and in doing so finally recognised 
the demands of time and justice. In the lecture he delivered when he received the Nobel Prize in 1974, Sean McBride spoke of the imperatives of survival in the 20th century, which he believed required nothing less than fulfillment of the United Nations Charter, a universal and lasting peace. In this century, the imperatives of survival of so many of the peoples of the world will rest on the willingness of the parties to fulfill <coughs> the pledges they made in Paris, both in terms of the mobilization of resources for climate change adaptation and in the commitment to maintain the global temperature increased to, to below <coughs> 2 degrees Celsius. Five years ago, Harimariam Desanian Bosch addressed in the United States, the General Assembly, as Prime Minister of Ethiopia, chairperson of the African Union, stated, the 21st century will be an African century. With every passing year, the truth of this statement becomes apparent. Demographic facts alone make it so. More than any other place on earth, the continent of Africa will be at the center of our global challenges. It is there the imperatives of survival will be felt most urgently. And more than any other place on earth, the continent of Africa has the potential, the energy, and the courage to lead the world in overcoming our shared challenges. It faces us with a global challenge. Will we have the courage to allow the flow of technology, science, in practice and with personnel, to flow over the borders into Africa? Or will we hold up, place barriers? Africa cannot wait for it to become presented as attractive to international corporate investors. That will simply be too late and will not achieve either the goals or will it achieve a response to climate change. As you know so well, it is in Africa that the most dangerous consequences of climate change are and will be born. The vast displacements of people fleeing land which can no longer pro provide the degradation of the environment and agricultural production, the simmering conflicts over diminishing natural resources, and basic human needs such as water. So when now so many speak of the need to deliver with a new <coughs> symmetry between economy, ecology, and ethics, will we allow it to emerge, or will we condemn Africa and our planet to what are failing paradigms? Can we seriously suggest that the extension of the present unaccountable international corporate practices with their absence of transparency is anyway adequate to turn our worlds into realities. Great <coughs> work on this is already underway by a determined scholar such as Ian Gopp in his most recent book, Heat, Greed and Human Need. And these are issues to which Irish academics continue to make important and urgent contributions. If I may give one just example, a scholar from this institution, Dr. Patrick Carmody, who has made a very important contribution in an article published last September, it, and it was charting the evolving relationship of the so-called BRICS nations, both between South Africa and the other BRICS, and between the BRICS and the rest of Southern Africa, and the role of trade, development, and debt played in that relationship. <coughs> And therefore, as well, it's not for me to decide, it's for Africans to decide how Africans will deal with each other and when they should deal with China. Or should you stand with China and your neighbors afterwards? And so on. These are also for people to, de to decide. But I think, too, the ongoing model of extractive industries, reliance on it by so many economies, and the ignoring 
But the cancelling the future that it represents is anti it's anti to ecological consequences uh, in no our peril. Coming to the end, the scholarship I have been looking for is a reminder, and the scholarship that I see that Dr. Clamity and others are doing, is a reminder that more than any other place on earth, the continent of Africa is now and will be the crucible for the global challenges that we confront in this century. It is bearing and will continue to bear the greatest consequences of climate change with all the possible implications for the displacements of people, the degradation of the environment and the eruption of new conflicts over diminishing natural resources that it brings and will bring. The International Monetary Fund estimates that by 2030, the contribution of Africa to the, as they put it, the increase in global labor force I prefer to say in young people. The increase in global labor force will exceed that from the rest of the world combined. By 2050, the continent of Africa will contain 2.5 billion people, 1.3 billion of whom will be young people. By 2060, Africa will be the only region on the planet with a growing number of people of working age. Now we should see this, I suggest, in terms of its possibilities with new models that will balance ecology, economy, and ethics. And we have to step up to the plate as intellectuals and academics, policy makers, in making sure that these new models will be allowed to see the light of day, a very difficult circumstances at the present time. In mid-century Africa will then be the continent of the young, with over 40% of the young people of this planet living there. In a continent rich with Thatcher and wealth, it is the people who will be the greatest source of development. And I repeat again what I said near the beginning. Africa is not a blank page. Africa has a long, old, and ancient set of histories and complexities. Africa has the potential to be the continent of promise and opportunity in our 21st century. It can carry the hopes, the dreams, and the ambitions of our shared planet. It can be a continent in which a new symmetry of economics, <coughs> ecology, ethics, and solidarity will be built, where science and technology will know no border, nor any hostile end, but will be delivered with humane purpose. And this will only be accomplished if the global community remains true to the commitments that we made in 2015 in New York and in Paris. The greatest danger is not that some nations reside from their promise, but that some nations were never really authentic in their words, that they do not intend to endure the difficult changes demanded of them, whether in terms of their efforts to decarbonize their domestic economies or in sanctioning the changes to the global political economy that I believe will be required if we are to meet the sustainable development goals. Those nations should look to Africa. I witnessed there some of the best examples of the kind of international cooperation and authenticity of intention required in this new century. Two months ago, I had the opportunity of hosting the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Convention to combat desertification, Ms. Monique Bandou. The convention has demonstrated that land degradation can be combated through new land management practices, equitable land tenure arrangements, the protection of women and such, and reforestation programs, and it is now fully integrated into the Sustainable Development Goals. It is in Africa that such a goal has found an initiative equal in its ambition, 
in the proposed establishment of the Great Green Wall, a zone of land restoration stretching 8,000 kilometers from Dhaka to Djibouti. In its breadth of vision, it is so characteristic <coughs> of its progenitor, Thomas Sankara, the former president of Burkina Faso, who saw in the Great Green Wall a means to bring together many of the nations of Africa in a single transformative continental enterprise, one capable of uniting not only the governments, but the peace peoples of Africa in a common endeavor. Excellencies, dear friends, 58 years ago, Kwame Nkrumah left Dublin to attend the inaugural ceremony of the Organization of African Unity. And he addressed those assembled as follows. On this continent, it has not taken us long to discover that the struggle against colonialism does not end with the attainment of national independence. Independence is only the prelude to a new, more involved struggle for the right to conduct our own economic and social affairs, to construct our society according to our aspirations. In this century, that struggle continues. It is upon the question of whether it is to be an African century, one shaped by the aspirations, by the continent of young, capable of meeting their needs and realizing their possibilities, that our future depends. Ireland means to be a part of this African century. We've shared a long and sometimes complex, difficult history as subjects of empires, searching, sometimes together, for freedom and independence as free nations, seeking to shape that independence towards a sustainable future. It is through solidarity with the African struggle for liberation that Ireland founds its place among the nations. It is through that solidarity that Ireland found a purpose for our national freedom. It is now time to deepen and extend our cooperation to meet the challenges of this century. The Irish government has committed to increasing our overseas development assistance budget to 0.7% of GM gross national income by 2030. It is also committed to increasing trade and investment with African nations. I welcome these commitments, but I ask for more. I ask for giving a lead in this new intellectual breakthrough that will make possible the Africa that we all want. The Fifth African Union, European Union Summit at Antibam Abidjan represented another step in regional cooperation, and I know that we all look forward to the finalization of the plan for the framework for cooperation for 2018 to 2020. The agreement between the EU and 79 countries, including so many of the states of sub-Saharan Africa, agreed at Cotonou 18 years ago, is also due to expire in 2020. A renewed agreement is an opportunity to place the Sustainable Development Goals of the Paris Accord at the centre of what must be a partnership of equals. These talks cannot be mere extensions of what went before. They must break new ground, be radical, be brave, and face down opposing interests which will seek to wreckage. For many years, the United Nations General Assembly has been the chamber in which the voice of the peoples of Africa was heard. Yet this has never been sufficient. It is time now to correct the historic imbalance towards African nations in the Security Council. When I spoke in the General Assembly at the high-level meeting on peace-building and sustaining peace, I said that we must discard any narrow or cynical realism. The young of the world, for example, are regularly appalled by the suggestion, now too frequently made, 
that it was, is all that to be normative at the General Assembly, but that the strut of the powerful and the wielders of power must prevail in the Security Council. I suggested then that we should heed the lost hopes of our collective past, the pleas for wisdom that were the whispers from the gallery at the United Nations, when so many of the newly free states of the world, Asia, the Caribbean and of Africa, brought their hopes, the hopes of their people to the United Nations. Dear friends, excellencies, we in Ireland are now presenting ourselves as a candidate for a non-permanent seat of the Security Council for the 2021-22 terms. I hope we do so seeking these aims that I have been mentioning. In doing so, we, need to, we seek to draw on our long tradition of pursuing peace, supporting disarmament, our role as key facilitator with Kenya of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, and our 60-year history of participating in United Nations peacekeeping missions, mainly in Africa. Two months ago, we worked with all member states of the United Nations in our role as Chair of the Commission on the Status of Women to propose policies to support women in rural areas across our planet. As a candidate country, we are asking for the support of the nations of Africa, and we in turn can assure you that you can rely on the continued support and solidarity of the Irish government and the Irish people. In this new century, where we need new thought, new policies, new cooperation, new forms of solidarity, let us go forward and pursue together a diplomacy of the common good, practice with courtesy, respect and deliberation, and eschew any simple transactional diplomacy based on perceived short-term national advantage. Yes, let us make it together an African century. Mila Buikas. Thank you. Thank you.